Tonight, in an Oval Office speech, President Bush will recommend withdrawing some troops from Iraq by next summer. But Democrats against the war are not satisfied. We'll discuss it with former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay. And we'll talk with an attorney and legal commentator who says we have the best legal system in the world if you're a criminal. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Crystal College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian Worldview for Christ and Culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Your host is Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jerry Johnson. This war is lost. That's Senate Leader Harry Reid. He's a Democrat. Long ago, he said, this war is lost. Tonight at 8 p.m., President Bush is set to speak to the nation from the Oval Office. We expect him to say that he agrees with the generals, not Harry Reid. He will say there are signs that we're able to pull some troops out from Iraq next summer, but that is not fast enough for the Democrats. In fact, the New York Times is reporting that this morning the president had some of these Democrat leaders to the White House trying to find common ground, and the moment he mentioned we will start doing some redeployment, Nancy Pelosi... Speaker of the House interrupted him, cut him off, and she said, No, you're not, Mr. President. You're just not going back to the pre-surge level. Is this appropriate talk from the Speaker of the House to the Commander-in-Chief in time of war? In just a moment, we'll talk to the former Republican leader in the House of Representatives, Tom DeLay in just a moment about what the president's going to say tonight, what the Congress is going to do, and about the behavior of the Democrats. Also, uh, we've watched some high-profile legal cases. Uh, We watch them on television all the time because they seem to capture the public's attention. We follow them on the news, and then we scratch our heads at the verdicts that are rendered. So the question comes up, is there something wrong with our legal system? Fox News host Bill O'Reilly thinks there is, and he's actually on a crusade to fix that. And in the battle with him is attorney and commentator Wendy Murphy. She will join us at 530. All right. What is the president going to say tonight about Iraq, and will the Congress support him? With us on the line is Tom DeLay. He's former House Majority Leader, the second-rating leader, ranking leader in the U.S. House of Representatives. Welcome back to the program, Majority Leader DeLay. Well, thank you, Jerry, and it's great to be with you and Penna. Tell us, 
What do you predict the president is going to say tonight, and what do you think the congressional response will be? Well, it's it's a very, very important time in our country, Jerry. Uh, this is a, a very crucial moment. Uh, the president's going to, uh, from my sources, is going to lay out where we are today, where he thinks we ought to be uh, a year from now, uh, close to the time he's going to leave office. Uh, he's going to talk about the progress that's been made, uh, why we're in this war on terror, and that uh, Iraq is just a part of it, and how important it is for uh, for the American people to see this through. Um, he's also going to reach out in his speech uh, to the political leadership of the country to try to bring uh, all of us together in in this last remaining effort to see success in Iraq and success in the in the war on on terror. Um, I, it's amazing to me that the Democrat leadership of the House and the Senate is more concerned about their political future than the future of this country and the security of this country. And, and you just have to say it that way. Mm. There is absolutely no reason for them to be taking the position that they're taking other than uh, who they are and have always been. I mean, we've seen the same thing in Vietnam when we pulled out of Vietnam in the the, the devastating effect of that, uh, the same fight that I was involved in uh, in Central America and and trying to uh, uh, bring peace and freedom to Central America. And the, each time the Democrats, for some reason or another, and I just can't think like they do, uh, want us to lose rather than to win. Mr. DeLay, I want you to listen to a soundbite from Michael McConnell. He's the Director for National Security our national intelligence. He spoke on September 10th, just a couple of days ago, uh, about a kind of a mindset. I want to ask you a question about this. My biggest concern, as mentioned by Senator Collins, is going back to September 10th thinking by many in our country. Uh, that's Michael McConnell, Director of National Intelligence. I, I want to ask you this question, Mr. DeLay. Do you feel like the left and the anti-war activist and a lot of these democrats and some republicans now that are waffling do you feel they've got their head in the sand and they're in a september 10th mode not really living in the real world after september 11 well it just seems to me jerry that they've got their head in a pole uh it, it's <laughs> it has nothing to do with reality it has nothing to do with what we are facing in the world the dangers that we as americans are facing it has nothing to do with uh, anything other than uh, protecting their own uh, political uh, backsides. Uh, it, it, that's, that's all I can figure, uh, figure it out. Um, I mean, it, it, it infuriates me that the press won't ask these people, what is their alternative? How are they going to keep America safe? How are they going to fight this war that has been brought on us? We didn't ask for this. Uh, and how are we going to protect the American people? They will not give you any plan other than we just got to remove the troops. That's all that. That's all there is. We just got to remove the troops. Uh, it 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 boggles my mind. Uh, it's it's just not. It's not reasonable. It's not. It's not reality. 
Um, you got to wonder guess. if the American people are just getting tired of hearing that. Uh, Mr. DeLay, you know, Petraeus laid out the successes this week. And it seems to me that what the left does, and even the just most of the Democrats, is they have to paint him as either a traitor or a liar in order to make their case now. That's exactly the way they operate. I mean, uh, they have no ideas. They have no su- suggestion for victory. They have no, uh, I mean, they, they can't even tell you how to, to uh, 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 they can't give you a plan on what would be success in Iraq from their point of view and their worldview. Um, it's, it's just an amazing political um, uh, strategy that the only way that you can justify your position is to tear down the character of the people that are fighting to keep Americans safe. In one sense, I think that does hurt them because, uh, you know, we've seen that uh, the president and the Congress don't have high approval ratings now, but the military still does. Uh, Mr. DeLay, what about uh, this plan of the president's that we expect to hear tonight? In a sense, the New York Times and other papers are saying, well, this is being portrayed as a middle way, a way to please both sides. But this is really what he was planning on doing all along, isn't it? Well, I, I, absolutely. There, there's no. Uh, you can, if there's one thing you you can say about uh, President Bush, <laughs> is he took a lot of time and showed a lot of leadership in in how we uh, approach this war on terror. And it it was not a a uh, decision that he took lightly to go into Iraq. He understood how important the, the Iraq was in the battle or in the war on terror, and. The thing that I give him all the credit in the world for, uh, with uh, the most incredible opposition that I've ever seen, maybe since the Vietnam War, he has stood strong. He he understands what the outcome has to be, and he understands how to get there. Uh, sure, there's been mistakes, and but we're fighting a different kind of war. We've never fought. No one's ever fought a war like this, and so we're having to write a completely new war manual. And but the but the the character of leadership is is when you made a decision and you find out it's not working, you admit that it's not working and you change directions and that's what the president has done all these years that we've been fighting this war and that's what he's doing again. You're listening to Jerry Johnson live. We're talking about the president's speech tonight at eight o'clock. He is planning to address the nation on Iraq and to lay out his plan for the next year. We've been listening to testimony on Capitol Hill this week of General George Petraeus and others. And um, we're talking to House Majority Leader, former House Majority Leader Tom DeLay of Texas. Mr. DeLay, this ad that was purchased in the New York Times the morning before we heard one word from General Petraeus, uh, you've heard of it. It said General Petraeus or General Betrayus cooking the books for the White House. Full page ad funded by MoveOn.org, a left wing a political group funded by the billionaire George Soros. Um, We found out today, it's out in the media, that the New York Times subsidized this ad, that they charged a half rate for this full-page ad. Rudy Giuliani Giuliani is asking now for that same rate, the same rate to buy a full-page ad. Uh, What do you make of the media here? 
this is sort of a one-sided neutrality, isn't it? Aren't they pulling um, for the naysayers? Well, the, and Jerry, you, you and Penna know that that uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, many of the newspapers, almost every newspaper in Texas, um, have been against this war from the very beginning, against our efforts from the very beginning. Uh, the, we don't have an objective media anymore. Uh, the, the so-called me- mainstream media is not objective anymore. They are always, uh, e- even now, uh, more so in their articles, not just their their editorial pages, uh, 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 pursuing their own interests, and that's why it is. This is such a critical time for the American people uh, to stand up and reject. Uh, you know, I <laughs> I dream the day that every American, whenever they come across a a New York Times newspaper would pick it up and tear it to shreds and throw it on the ground. <laughs> uh, I know that may not help our environment, but uh, it's time for the American people to speak and yeah. push back. What can and we do hold to these people accountable? What can we do to influence the Congress? How you you work Congress? What do they respond to? Is it email, phone calls, personal letters? What is the best way for folks to say right now? Let's support the president. Let's support General Petraeus. Let's support the troops. Well, two things. All the above that you just uh, stated is very important. Contacting your member of Congress is incredibly important. And and the thing that uh, you cannot allow is to sit there and say, well, my congressman's a Democrat, anti-war, and it won't do any good. Believe me, it will be do a lot of good. It will also do a lot of good to contact Republicans uh, or, or even uh, Democrats that support what the president is doing and, and give them the confidence to continue the, the stance that they're taking. You can bet, uh, and I, I, I know that the, the coalition of the left is pounding mm. every member of oh, Congress, Republican and Democrat right now, pounding them unmercifully. Uh, and uh, the silent majority needs to res- resurrect its head again and express itself, not unlike the way they express themselves on immigration not too long. Well, let's do it. We're out of time. We're on a hard break. Tom DeLay, thank you for being with us. You've written that book, No Retreat, No Surrender. His website, TomDeLay.com. TomDeLay.com. When we come back, more sounds from Capitol Hill on this debate about the war, an opportunity for you to call in at 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270. Do you support the president? Do you support General Petraeus? What do you think the president will say, should say tonight? We'll hear from you when you come back. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Chris 
Municipal College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's criswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Welcome back to Jerry Johnson Live. Dr. Johnson had to step out, and uh, I've been gone for a few days, so I'm glad to have the opportunity to uh, sit in the host chair. And I want to know what your thoughts are on the next steps in the Iraq War. Give us a call, 800-881-9270. Do you believe these success stories heard by General Petraeus? Should we allow the troops to stay? Should we begin a pullout now, or should we pull out later? And what about the left's portrayal of General David Petraeus as a traitor? We are taking your calls. Again, the number is 800-881-9270. As we mentioned, President Bush will be using a prime time address tonight to appeal for more time in Iraq. I don't really think it's appealing for more time in Iraq. He's the commander-in-chief, and he's basically stating that our troops will stay in Iraq. Even as a killing there illustrates the big job that will take place ahead. They did say that there might be some tough news surrounding the Petraeus report, and there is. Here's a report from Mark Smith at the White House. Hours before the speech, a top Sunni chief who'd turned against al-Qaeda was killed in a bombing near his home. The president met with Abdul Sattar Abu Risha and other sheikhs in Anbar province last week and has made their about-face Exhibit A that the troop surge is working. Tonight, Bush will announce the surge forces can gradually come home, but insist the overall military thrust in Iraq has to continue. Meantime, a White House spokeswoman calls Abu Risha a man of courage and determination and says his death underscores the need for perseverance. Mark Smith at the White House. Of course, uh, this was a Sunni leader. Uh, The Sunni forces in certain areas have actually teamed up with U.S. forces to fight al-Qaeda, and unfortunately this leader was killed. And it just goes to show that uh, there's still a lot of work yet to be done. And uh, as we have been saying, President Bush will give this speech, and what he'll say, we expect, is what General Petraeus has recommended, and that is that we begin to pull some troops by next summer, but keep about 130 to 135,000 troops through at least mid-2008. And really, President Bush has said all along that uh, we will pull troops only from a position of strength and success. And that's something that strikes me in this whole situation, is that President Bush has had a plan. Yes, he's been willing to tweak it and move it according to military situations, situations on the ground in Iraq. But he's really stayed with his plan. He wants to leave the world more free of terrorists especially these these Islamo-fascist terrorists, than it was at 9-11 and before when he took office. And uh, that is proven by the fact that the administration is even talking now about taking some type of military action against Iran because they have been so firm in their resolve and have not uh, abandoned their nuclear plan. Let's go back to uh, some audio we uh, heard over the weekend on NBC, actually just uh, today on NBC's Today Show, Republican Senator Chuck Hagel of Nebraska, who has not been a fan of the administration's war strategy, he said on today that uh, President Bush should have taken the opportunity to follow the advice of the Baker-Hamilton Iraq Study Group report. 
president had an opportunity to build some consensus there and move in a different direction. He chose not to do that. You can't continue to feed troops into Iraq, break our army, break our Marines, undermine our influence the, in the Middle East, and especially in Iraq, and think that you're somehow going to come out at the other end uh, with a so-called victory. Of course, the Baker-Hamilton report had lots of recommendations, but one of the major ones was to continue diplomacy, to deal with Syria, to deal with Iran. That seems a little crazy now. Here's uh, James Baker, one of the leaders of that study group, talking about it. I hope we don't treat this like a fruit salad. Well, in a sense, uh, I think the administration has the right to pick and choose the recommendations that uh, they think would be good and that would work, and that's exactly what they've done. Well, let's go back to the phones and talk about this. What do you expect to hear tonight, and what do you think of it? Rhonda in Dallas is on the line. Rhonda, thanks for calling. Thank you for taking my call. I have one question. It's very um, straight to the point. I don't understand. Well, my question is, why is it that people that don't know how to fight a war, Democrats, Republicans, doesn't matter, they don't know how to fight a war, war are so quick to criticize the president as though um, he knows, instead of coming together as a nation and trying to fight a war, why are we not doing that? And Tom DeLay said it so perfectly. People get it for themselves. They're not thinking about this country, and I think we'll think about this country if we got attacked again. You want to come together when there's a tragedy. I just understand why we can't be together. Why can't we really be one nation? You know, I think it's a frustration that a lot of people have, and uh, that question, Rhonda, comes to my mind a lot when I think about this, because here you've had the two generals, the two top generals in Iraq coming and talking about giving, you know, charts and really their assessment of what's happening. It's been, they've been attacked as not being honest, but it really appears to be a very honest assessment because it showed the good, bad, and the ugly. Uh, as they've come back and spoken to the Congress and even on television. And they're, so they're the men best qualified to give this account, and yet everybody is trying to second-guess them. And uh, Mr. DeLay, Representative DeLay, is absolutely right. It's a political football. It's being used by the left, by the Democrats in Congress, to try to gain some sort of traction. And, you know, I guess the question we have here for folks, if you want to call in and answer it, is does this really help the Democrats when the leader of the Democrat Party in the House of Representatives is just interrupting the president and saying his plan is not acceptable? Let's go back to the phones and talk to Trent in Dallas. Hi, Trent. Hi, how are you? Thank you for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, I just, you know, I'm, I'm definitely by no stretch of the imagine the most politically educated guy out there. I was in the Marine Corps for 10 years. I just got out about a year ago. Actually. Thank you for your service. Thank you, ma'am. Um, and, and I couldn't agree more with the last caller. Right now, nothing upset me more when I was at my duty stations and I'd come back from a deployment to see people standing outside the base with bring our troops home and, and stuff like that. And, and to be honest with you, a lot of my buddies felt the same way. It's more, it, it, that's really not supporting us. It's kind of, hey, welcome back. We never wanted you to go over there. It's kind of a slap in the face. So when you got back, that's what you saw? Yeah, I mean, it was all over the place. It, it, it's everywhere. And then when I, my last duty station actually was in New Orleans. And um, all over down there, you, you know, uh, when we got back, you know, we go out there and we go to Mardi Gras and, you know, check out the show. And there's people out there and, and all they want to do is talk about bringing us back. And we're sorry you had to go over there. And to be honest with you, I mean, that's our job. 
and we support the president, and obviously I can't speak for everybody, but for the most part, we know if we take care of this now, there's a lot less of a chance that we're going to have to deal with this again later. And every day, we don't see the success every day, especially looking inside, but it's there. You know, uh, you mentioned these protests, and apparently on Saturday, which is two days from now, there's going to be a major protest in Washington, D.C. It's going to, they're saying, uh, this group Answer, Act Now to Stop War and End Racism, is saying it's going to be unlike any other, and the activists are going to be there demanding an immediate end to the war in Trent. Uh, as you speak as someone who has served, that's extremely demoralizing to our troops that are really making the ultimate sacrifice, isn't it? Thank you. And, and, and it is. I mean, obviously, we all want to be with our family. I have a wife and two kids. And, and doing deployments, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we sign up to do. It's something we want to do. And I think that you take that step knowing that there's that chance, which means that you will back whoever the president of the United States is, and you will do what is needed. But when we come back, it's just kind of like uh, Vietnam. You come back and people are upset that we're over there in the first place. And it's all about certain politicians wanting to sit back and say, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have done it. Look how many people mm-hmm. have gotten killed over there and and so that they look good coming out of the other end. Trent, one more question before uh, the end of the segment and just thank you for joining us. I and I so appreciate hearing from someone who has served because I think this is the perspective we need right now. But what do you think of a president who sort of marches forward with the wisdom that he thinks that he has and that he's gotten from his military leaders and makes a speech tonight saying basically I'm going to do what I think is best for the country and not what the polls say? That is what we vote for. In my opinion, we pick a president that is going to, who, I mean, if you think about it in, in the aspects of, would you really want to vote for a president that you thought is going to make command decisions as the commander-in-chief and then renege on them consistently or constantly? It's much better. When, when President Bush, after 9-11 happened, and he said, we will not rest. We will go after these people until this is over. Everybody was on the bandwagon. Everybody was all, it was great for everybody. Mm-hmm. Every, certain people started uh, second-guessing it, and then it just becomes, it, it's another bandwagon. It's a football team that nobody likes or knows, and everybody all of a sudden wants to get on it and join in. Trent, um, thanks so much for calling. We appreciate uh, your weighing in so eloquently today on the program. And ladies you. and gentlemen, um, I want to get back to a piece of news that happened today that kind of, again, Uh, sort of highlights what is going on and the fact that there is still much more to do. Uh, The troops need to stay and continue to secure the situation. Um, This report is about the key Sunni leader that we mentioned before who actually helped the U.S. and the Iraqi security forces fight al-Qaeda. He was killed today in Iraq, and here's a report from correspondent Robert Reed in Baghdad. The most prominent figure in the Anbar Sunni revolt against al-Qaeda has been killed by a roadside bomb near his home in Anbar province. Abdul Sattar Abu Risha was the leader of the Anbar Awakening, a group of Sunni tribes in Anbar who mutinied against al-Qaeda last year and began working for the U.S. military. As a precautionary measure, security has been increased in the Anbar provincial capital, Ramadi, with extra checkpoints and police patrols along the routes. That security can't be increased unless we have troops there, and uh, they need to stay a long time until the political situation is stabilized. There are signs that happening. That's happening. We have ups and we have downs. 
in a war. Well, ladies and gentlemen, next up, we are going to talk about our legal system, our criminal justice system here in the United States. You may have seen our next guest on television on the O'Reilly Factor and other programs. She's very good at exposing the uh, lawyers and the judges who let dangerous criminals go free. And we're going to talk about that next on Jerry Johnson Live. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Welcome back to Jerry Johnson Live. I did promise uh, that we'd have an attorney on the program, and uh, Wendy Murphy will join us later. But I want to talk a little presidential politics here, because uh, the presidential race is kind of morphing and moving around a little bit. The report by General Petraeus and what's happening tonight with President Bush, in a sense, I think, helps John McCain as a candidate, because he has been the candidate that's really supported the troops. Uh, he actually has done so badly lately that, in a sense, I think he's coming out and uh, able to say a little bit more with a little bit more strength about his positions. And basically, he seems to be enjoying the campaign trail. Uh, also, we're seeing Fred Thompson join the race. I know that you and Dr. Johnson have talked about that uh, earlier in the week. Uh, Mike Huckabee, the possibility of him debating Fred Thompson, that may make some changes in the race. And uh, there's lots to talk about, and we'll continue to talk about that a little bit later in the program. But I'm very pleased now to welcome to the program Wendy Murphy. Uh, Wendy Murphy is an attorney. And she has also appeared on The O'Reilly Factor and many other programs to talk about what she thinks are the problems in our criminal justice system. She's got a new book out, and it's entitled And Justice for Some, an expose of the lawyers and judges who let dangerous criminals go free. Wendy, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's good to be with you, Penna. Tell me uh, what you think is the major problem right now as the criminal uh, justice system exists at this point. Wow. Um, I don't know if I could pick a single problem, but let me say that I, I guess I would describe the general problem of judges having zero accountability and oversight as being a big one. I mean, that covers a lot of subtopics, but really, you know, when you think about the power that judges have, the fact that they're appointed for life, the fact that they can literally do whatever they want and fly under the radar screen because we don't have C-SPAN cameras in every courtroom, uh, it, it should make us a lot, uh, a lot more nervous than I think we are. And, uh, you know, we forget that judges have a tremendous amount of power. They affect many, many lives, both when they overdo it, as sometimes happens, but more commonly when they underdo it and literally let, for example, child sex offenders walk free. Uh, you know, it's hard for us to keep track of what judges are doing. They're not required to give us annual report cards, which, by the way, I call for in my book. I, I literally think the one thing we should be calling for across the country is for judges to engage in annual self-created um, report cards so that we can see what they're doing. What, you know, do they have a particular bias? Are they underdoing it in certain types of cases? What can we do, uh, you know, to hold them more accountable? And, and I, I want to be clear, I respect the independence of the judiciary. I think they should mm -hmm. not be subject to the whims of, uh, you know, our feelings today versus tomorrow. They should be a stable branch of government. But let's not forget that they are the government, and the government should always be subject to some oversight. Wendy, uh, we uh, mentioned earlier in the program before you joined us that often the public is quite interested in some of these uh, high-profile cases 
where uh, it involves a child who's either been killed or uh, had some sort of a sexual crime perpetrated on them. The public is very interested in this, and often the parents are actually the ones who uh, are under suspicion about this. And let's just go to uh, this particular piece of audio having to do with a very high-profile victim, we think is a victim, Maddie McCann. They had collaborated all the way through the last few months with the police and in fact sometimes driving the investigation, making sure that the British were providing resources and now we have this turn of events, which, you know, it's completely unfounded. All right, this is the uncle of this little girl, Maddie McCann, uh, John McCann, speaking on CBS's early show. Tell us a little bit about this case and whether you think right now the suspicion on the parents is warranted. Well, you know, I haven't seen any of the evidence, of course, but I've been doing an awful lot of coverage. And what I can tell you is uh, it's not nothing that the law enforcement officials uh, have told us uh, in various apparently um, credible news sources that they've found good reason to place both parents in the category of uh, suspects. Um, as hard as it is for us to believe that parents could kill or hurt their own children, especially what I call the beautiful people, you know, they're so cute. I mean, the mother looks like a model. Mm-hmm. Some of the people that were watching, the guys were blowing wolf whistles at her. It's really hard to think that really nice people who look so and their child is so gorgeous. You can't even put your head around the notion of them hurting the child. And this is a mother who went through in vitro to have these kids. Plus, she's a medical doctor. It's just completely inconsistent with our sense of how the world works. So we're naturally disinclined to believe what should be obvious, which is that for the most part, parents are responsible when a child goes missing. Something like 90-plus percent of cases Uh, It's the parents, and we move in the opposite direction because it feels so much Mm -hmm. better to believe that it was the man on the moon. It's sort of the way we felt with uh, John John Bonet, Ramsey. Exactly, and I've just written a piece where I make that exact comparison, that we have a kind of built-in feel-good prejudice, where we go in the direction that feels good because it's too painful to go in the obvious direction sometimes. But look, here's what we know about the McCann case that's been reported. And again, I don't know this firsthand, but it's been reported in reputable sources. They found the child's hair, clumps of her hair, in the trunk of a car the parents rented in Portugal 25 days after she went missing. In that same area of the car, they found body fluid that uh, is at least described at this point as a high match, 80 to 90 percent match uh, to Maddie McCann's DNA. There's really no innocent explanation for how clumps of hair and body fluid, which I think is a loose term for decomposition material, you know, the body was probably in bad shape. How do you explain how that got into the trunk of your car? And then one of my favorite um, bits of evidence to talk about, and it applies to the Ramses as well, is they refused to answer certain questions. The mother was pointedly asked 40 questions about that night, and she refused to answer the questions to the police. Now, here's what gets me about that. I don't care about people who take their Fifth Amendment rights. I respect that. I, I, I'll defend the Bill of Rights, you know, from sunup till sundown and forever and ever. But don't go on television and lie to me and stand with the Pope, in a sense using God as cover. Don't go on television and fake cry like Scott Peterson did, like the Ramseys did, like this family has been doing. And then when law enforcement wants to speak to you, you say, 
I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to answer those questions. You can't have it both ways. You can shut up. You can take the fifth and shut up. But you can't take the fifth with the police and then lie to the public. That just It's like rubbing salt in the wound that I feel about this issue. So for me, you know, if it was my child, I wouldn't care. If they wanted to ask me anything, I would camp out at the police station. I would give my blood. Mm-hmm. I would give anything they asked of me. Cause if you were innocent. Kid, right? I will do anything. I don't even care if they think I'm a suspect. Okay, Wendy Murphy is my guest. The book is fascinating and justice for some. And, of course, we talk about kids and these crimes committed against them. Uh, it pulls on our heartstrings, and then we're, our emotions are then led around by the the concept of these parents. But I want to go to some of the other high-profile cases that have taken place in the uh, past that many of us think the verdicts were unfair. O.J. Simpson, why did he go free? Oh, boy. You know, I think that there's uh, an unfortunate consensus that he went free because the prosecutor was a, was a bunch of bungling idiots. Uh, I don't see it that way. And I know Marsha Clark, um, I know they could have done a better job, and the whole glove thing was ridiculous. But the real reason he went free was because, and I got a whole chapter on this, was because of classic race baiting. I mean, the defense was allowed to turn that courtroom upside down and make the whole story be about race prejudice, racial hatred. Uh, I mean, once you do that, once you light that fire in a courtroom where most of the jurors were black, uh, there there was a large, large collection of O.J. fans, minority O.J. fans outside the courthouse at all times. They had just had... um, Oh, the case up north in California that had made people very angry based on race, uh, the Rodney King beating. Right. And, you know, once you ignite that fire in the courtroom, the jurors can't see straight. They cannot see the evidence clearly because they're so angry. So that's what I think happened in that case, is that as soon as Judge Ito said, I'm going to let you ask Mark Furman if he's ever used the N-word, once that happened, that's it. The case was over. Justice is thrown out the window then. Thrown out the window. Can I, can I just say one more thing, though, sure. about the Ramsey case before sure. we move on? Because be, you brought it up, and I want to make it very clear. I have never before revealed evidence from the Ramsey file in my book. And I want to tell you about it, very little bit about it, and make folks buy it if they're interested in the case, because the truth has been corrupted in that case as well in terms of what I'm allowed. All right, Wendy, let me jump in then before you do that, because we're coming up on the end of the segment. So can you stay for another segment so we can cover all this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, then go ahead. Um, Okay. And I won't go into it in detail. I'll just tell you that there's a lot of stuff in there about the Ramsey case. And here's a piece I bet you haven't even heard. Uh, But tell me if you have, because I'm interested in knowing what percentage of people have heard even an ounce of the truth. That child, that little girl, the poor thing, had been to the pediatrician 30 times in the three years before her death. Hmm. Had you even heard that? Never heard that. Many visits were for, take a guess. Uh, Child uh, bruises and things. Genital issues. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Her internal organs, her hymen, um, was nearly gone, and she had chronic injuries in her genital area. Now, there's more in the book that directly connects the father to the case that the public has never heard before because of a dirty trick that I call uh, bullying the advocates. I have a whole chapter on it. My book is broken up into chapters that are all about the dirty tricks. Each chapter is a dirty trick. Well, this one is called bullying the advocates. The reason I put it in there is because John Ramsey's lawyer threatened to sue me on Larry King by name, threatened to sue me if I dared suggest his client's involvement in his daughter's death. And in response to that, I said, oh, you think you're going to silence me about the truth for that little girl? Wrong. I'm going to put it in my book. So I got a whole chapter in there about all that I know 
and I'm telling you, this case, this book got lawyered. There's a lot in there that points the finger directly at the Ramseys. Wendy Journey, uh, Wendy Murphy will stay with us. Uh, she'll join us for the next segment. Her book is "And Justice for Some: An Expose of the Lawyers and Judges Who Let Dangerous Criminals Go Free." A fascinating book. Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Welcome back to Jerry Johnson Live. Uh, the book is Injustice for Some, and the foreword is actually by Bill O'Reilly, who Fox popular, popular Fox television host. And one of the things that he says in that uh, forward, when we're talking about the criminal justice system, is money is the root of all legal evil. Now, my guest is Wendy Murphy, and she's written this book. Is that true, that money is the root of all evil very often in these cases, Wendy? Oh, yeah. You know, it's one of the biggest problems because uh, there's an old saying in the legal system about how uh, money walks. Uh, you know, it's 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 so true that there are jokes about it. But I, I think when we when we watch it play out, sometimes we don't know what to make of it. I'll give you another example uh, from my book. Is, I guess we need to know how it works. Well, let me explain. So, so in the Kobe Bryant trial, for example, um, everyone knew Kobe was very wealthy. But we think that the criminal justice system is a great equalizer, right? No one's allowed to commit a crime. No one's above the law, and so forth. So here's Kobe, charged with a crime, being treated like every man, and that's all well and good. Well, at some point before his trial was set to begin, the victim got an attorney who happened to be friendly with Kobe Bryant's defense attorney, who decided to file a civil suit against Kobe Bryant at the same time the criminal case was pending. It wasn't necessary to file it at that point of time. At point in time. But when he filed it, I literally, doing my analysis on television, said, okay, here we go. This is going to be the, you know, the, um, uh, the venue through which the payoff is going to happen. And sure enough, you know, within a matter of months and before the criminal case ever went to trial, uh, she got some big pile of money, quote-unquote, as a settlement of that civil suit. But let's be honest, after she got the money... She went to the prosecutor and said, I don't want to testify. Now, in my book, that's corruption. That's obstruction of justice. That's a crime. 
And the prosecutor should have said, I don't care how much he gave you, you are going to take the stand. I mean, can you imagine Mm -hmm. in any other case the lead witness to a bank robbery saying, you know, the robber paid me off so I don't feel like testifying, we would be incredulous. But here the victim said, oh, I've been through a lot, and she had, she had. But, you know, the problem is tax dollars. How many tax dollars had been spent getting that case ready for trial? Millions? I don't know, but a lot, a real lot. And here we were on the eve of trial, and she says, I don't feel like testifying. For me, it's not only corruption. I feel like saying to her, how dare you leverage your settlement value by waiting until the eve of trial to squeeze as much extra zeros out of Kobe Bryant as you could get and then saying you don't feel like testifying. If I had been the prosecutor, I would have said, I don't care how much you got. I don't care how upset you are. You're going to testify because that's your civic duty. Prosecutors don't do that often enough. They indulge these kind of resolutions. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, it's because we're not paying enough attention to say, well, wait a minute, that's a payoff. That's corruption. When no poor have... guy, no poor guy who raped that woman would have been allowed to pay her off. So he's, he's in prison. He's behind bars, but Kobe Bryant isn't. That's mm-hmm. not right. It's not. And so many in so many of these cases, you're giving us some of the background information that we've never heard. And what I really want to ask you is because as I read in your bio that you actually have five children and that you've uh, worked hard in the legal uh, area, in the legal field for years. What brought you to the point where you felt like you really had to speak out against these things? Um, You know, I don't know if there's an exact date, but I can tell you and I write about this in the book a little bit. Um, when I was a new prosecutor, very idealistic, uh, you know, I represented the state in child abuse and sex crimes cases. I went about my business, and pretty quickly I started to notice that I, as the prosecutor, was part of a system that was doing terrible things to victims who had already suffered enough. And I remember, you know, many times myself standing up in court and saying to the judge, you know, I realize that's what the defense is asking, Judge, but that's not right. Or I realize that's what the law says, but that's not right. And that you know, can't be right. And the judge would say to me, you know, Ms. Murphy, your job is to state the law. You're the prosecutor. You shouldn't be complaining about it. You want to complain about it, go get another job. And, you know, I did, as, I did my five years with the prosecutor's office, and then I literally took it very seriously. When the judge said, if you don't like the law, go do something about it, I did. And I remember thinking the day I left public service to get a real job, I said to my husband, and by then I had had two kids, which also makes prosecuting child sex cases really hard. I'm sure. But um, I remember saying to my husband, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get you know, a real job and work in a real law firm, but first I want to do this volunteer case for some victims. <laughs> and um, here I am 15 years later, and my husband just rolls his eyes because I do about 70% pro bono work. I, I represent most of my clients for free because I really believe – that it's part of my responsibility as an attorney, uh, because I, I can't just complain about it. I have to do something about it, and I do all the time, and I'm very proud of the work I do. I just wish more people would do it. I right. wish there were more money in the business of helping victims, but there just isn't. Let me ask you one final question, because on this program we often talk about the forgiveness and uh, restoration Uh, that comes from having faith in Jesus Christ. And I think that concept of of restoration, in a sense, has been perverted in the justice system. And I know you're very concerned about this concept of restorative justice. So talk about that a moment. Right. There are a lot of problems with restorative justice. And and one of the bigger ones is that it's sort of a code phrase that sounds nice, 
Uh, but it's a code phrase for if you give the victim some money and you say you're sorry, we won't make you go to prison. In other words, it's a substitute for punishment. And, you know, whether you're religious or not, punishment is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. And the Bible talks about the value of punishment. Human beings have always talked about the power of punishment. If you go back to you know, the times when uh, Native Americans lived on the land and there were no jails. If you hurt a child, you got banished. They didn't have jails, but they would just tell you to go away, and you weren't allowed to live in civilized society. So punishment is a perfectly appropriate way to think about what should happen when you commit a terrible crime. Restorative justice doesn't like punishment. People who believe in restorative justice think that you can just pay the victim some money, say you're sorry, and uh, everybody's happy. Now, I worry about it it's, it's because it's a form of corruption, which I've already said I don't like it, but it's also not likely to produce much by way of true restoration, because if the reason you're saying you're sorry is because you're trying to get a plea bargain, you're not really that sorry. So I it's mean, really not going to work, and it's not, not going to get the criminals off the street. Wendy Murphy, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we appreciate your work, me. and uh, appreciate your book, Injustice for Some. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Uh, We can look to the scriptures and look to the word of God, and we see that God is always ready to pardon, graceful, gracious, and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness. Uh, But also, when we sin, there are often consequences. We can certainly receive forgiveness for sin, but sometimes we have to pay the consequences, and there's much in the word of God about that. There's also uh, much about restoration and forgiveness. And in the book of Colossians, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 12, it talks about God's chosen people being compassionate, kind, and humble, and also forgiving one another the grievances that we have against each other as the Lord forgave us. So we are to forgive one another, but we have to remember that there are consequences for sin and that government, because of what the Word of God says, gets to voice those consequences on those who disobey. Join us tomorrow for more of Jerry Johnson Live. And don't forget to watch The President tonight. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, President of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m., for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.